Today on the show, we're going to be talking about non-equity ownership. What, what the heck is that? What am I talking about? Let's find out. I'm David C. Barnett, and you're tuned in to Small Business and Dealmaking, the podcast, YouTube channel, and blog, where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses while controlling risk. So if you're looking to take control of your future through buying a business one day, or if you already own a business and you're looking to grow or exit, you've come to the right place. I talk about interesting things, I talk to interesting people, and I answer your questions every week right here. So be sure to hit like and be sure to hit subscribe, and let's get to it. All right, so a couple of weeks ago, uh, I put out a video called Eight Reasons Not to Buy a Business, and we'll put a little floating magical link to it here somewhere above my head. Um, in that video, I mentioned that one of the reasons not to buy a business was because you could earn more money in the business without being an owner that maybe you shouldn't want to be the owner. And so what do I mean by that? Well, this may come as a surprise to those of you watching my channel who do not yet own a business, but it is perfectly possible for you to be a business owner, have somebody that works in the business um, earning a salary, um, end up with more money than you as the owner, right? I mean, people don't think about that. It happens all the time, let me tell you, because I see financial statements from businesses where the business has lost money and of course all the employees got a paycheck, right? Um, and in, there can even be some circumstances where record sales have been made and certain salespeople who are commission earning um, could have record earnings in that year and the business may lose money because of the execution of the contract or delivery of the product, whatever, uh, wasn't profitable, right? And so the, the salesperson's taking home a lot of money and the owner of the business ends up trying to find money to keep the thing afloat, okay? So when I talk about non-equity ownership, what I'm talking about is how can we position ourselves so that we can have an interest in the performance of a business and earn money without necessarily being a shareholder or LLC member or a formal you know, owner of the organization. And there are several formats uh, that we could call non-equity ownership. And I've already mentioned one. So the very first one is to be a commission salesperson. Now, um, I recommend commission sales to anyone who wants to have a future in business because ultimately business owners are responsible for bringing money in the door in their business. And I think that being in sales, particularly commission sales, where you have to learn to do things you're not comfortable with, maybe to get out of your shell a little bit and go talk to strangers, et cetera, you need to learn and develop those skills, which will pay um, dividends throughout the rest of your life as a business owner, being able to talk in front of people, call people on the phone, strike up conversations with people, make presentations, et cetera. Very valuable skill set. So People will say to me, but David, uh, you know, then you're an employee, you're not an owner. Um, you don't have like all the other advantages of ownership, like directing uh, your time, um, you know, building an asset that you can sell, et cetera. Well, let me tell you, um, you're also not making an investment, right? So, so the, the, there's a balance here. There's a yin and a yang. There's, there's a give and a take. So commission salespeople can be very high income earning people, uh, but they don't have to make an investment in the business. And so I've seen many very successful commission salespeople actually 
grow a pair of golden handcuffs because they're earning so much money in their sales role that it's really hard for them ever to justify leaving the business in order to do something else. In fact, it's one of the things that I faced um, when I had my uh, when I was with the Yellow Pages, and we'll, we'll put a link here to the um, to my life as you know, in the Yellow Pages video that I made years ago. But I was earning a, a good six figure income selling Yellow Page ads, and what finally made me decide to make the leap into entrepreneurship was that I was in a position in my life where I wasn't married, I didn't have kids. I had a good financial foundation. I had already started making investments in rental properties. So I had some degree of cash flow coming into my life that wasn't strictly tied to my working every day. Um, and I thought, if I'm going to do this, I better do it now. But, but the other thing that was happening, it was the internet. And I knew that the good thing I had going at the Yellow Pages was probably not going to carry on forever uh, because it was it was obvious by that point that, you know, people were going to be able to look things up on the Internet on their phone, you know, at that time, which was an incredible innovation. Um, and that the days of hunting for that book to go find a, a plumber in your hometown uh, were limited. So so that's why I ended up getting out of commission sales. But if it wasn't for those reasons, it would have been very difficult. In fact, a lot of my colleagues who were in their 50s and 60s, like older guys, um, had often talked about these different opportunities where they thought about going out and starting their own thing and didn't pull the trigger because of um, the comfort of having that high income. Now, there's also a lot of uh, commission salespeople out there that I sold businesses to in my broker days, and they intended to keep their job. They were looking for that business they could run on the side and they could apply their skills and help that business grow, but they wanted to keep the golden goose going. Anyway, that's commission sales. That's number one. Number two, very similar uh, bonuses or profit sharing schemes, particularly if you're in management. So I made a video years ago about the things that you need to learn before you leave your job. And one of the things I recommended was that you try to get into a position where you're in charge of managing an income statement or a P&L for a certain division, group, or location of a business. And that would allow you to build your business management skills while someone else puts the bill. So if you're in a position where you're running a division or group or team or something, if you can have uh, some sort of bonus or profit sharing structure that relates to the way you operate your team, it can be just like that commission sales role where you're getting a piece of the action like an owner would, again, without having to make an investment or putting up any money to risk. If you don't have to put your money into a business and you're earning good money out of it, it just opens the door to all those other kinds of investments that people might want to do, buying an apartment building or um, you know, maybe finding other people to, to work with towards buying some kind of business as a group where you become one of the financial people, someone else steps in and runs the day-to-day. -day. All kinds of variations on that that I've seen over the years. Uh, so that's, that's number two bonuses or profit sharing strategy, particularly for people who are in management. Number three is a little bit of a different one. It's, it's ownership via contract. So this is where you have a formalized uh, contract, which creates the effect of owning a business where, when in fact you do not own any of the business. So let me give you an example of this because I, I, I actually did this with one of my associates in my business broker days. Um, Business brokerage is a tough business for an, a broker office owner because if you get a good business broker working in your office, typically in the industry, you work on commission splits 
and the office owner is carrying all the overhead of running the office. And then the brokers basically, they're just operating without any of the burden every month, but then they close a deal and they get like a hundred thousand dollar commission. And then they very begrudgingly have to pay like half of it to the office owner. And they start to think, hmm, maybe I should go open my own place. Same thing happens with lawyers, accountants, hairdressers, lots of professionals where people say, I'm bringing in all this money. Why am I splitting it with the office owner? And so the challenge, if you're going to own a business like that, is how do you keep good people engaged within the business? Now, because of where I live, there is a licensing requirement. Um, it meant that the owner of the business had to hold a certain license. And there was just all this regulatory complexity that would be involved if we tried to have somebody own part of the shares of my corporation. And on top of that, my corporation was involved in a lot of other little business things. Like if you've read Invest Local, you know about the local lending and, and stuff that I do, the private lending. Um, and so the corporation was not purely involved in business brokerage. It had other activities too. So what I did is I offered one of my successful brokers an opportunity to participate in the business brokerage business via a contract. And so what we did is we spelled out, you know, revenue and the direct costs and the overheads related to um, the activity in the business. And every month on top of the normal bookkeeping from my corporation, we would do this second, um, it wasn't a second set of books, but it was a different accounting that had to be done for this contract. So we would have the revenue, the direct costs, any commissions paid out to other agents. We would have all of the overhead expenses of the office, and then we would have a net figure. And then that individual share was a certain percentage of the overall activity. So if the number was positive, I wrote him a check. If the number was negative, he wrote me a check. Because don't forget, when you're in something like a business brokerage, you can go months and months and months without a deal closing and you're bearing all of the overhead. So part of the reason why I wanted to invite him into this contract was that I would be able to move some of the burden of the monthly overhead onto someone else to relieve pressure on myself. And so he got to participate in all the pleasures and pain of ownership. Um, even though he wasn't a shareholder in the company, we had this contract which basically spelled out how we were gonna do things every month. So for many months, he had to write me a check for his share of the overhead. And then in months when we had a deal closing, I would write him a check. And so he was able to participate in the, the ownership advantages and disadvantages of the business through a contract. Number four, um, not-for-profit businesses. Now, this is an exciting one. And I made a couple of mentions of, of this before throughout the years in different places, but I never made a full video about it before. So sometimes let's talk about the difference between a business, a for-profit business, a not-for-profit business and a charity. Okay. So for-profit business, I run one today. I'm trying to make money. That's why I'm on YouTube, right? Um, a charity is like my sister's dog rescue organization. They have a charitable status. They accept donations and give tax receipts, and they use the money to help find new homes for dogs that are unwanted, right? Charitable. In the middle, there's this gray zone, not-for-profit. And a lot of people in the public don't quite understand the difference between a not-for-profit company and a charity, because a lot of not-for-profits do have altruistic or community aims, but they don't have the charity status. 
So the one that I'm the most familiar with, I'll draw, um, I'll, I'll make the comparison with is my local chapter of the Kiwanis Club. So international fraternal organization service club, um, we ran as a not-for-profit corporation, which simply meant that we didn't in turn to, intend to turn a profit every year, which simplified all of our bookkeeping. Um, it meant that here where we live, um, there wasn't an owner, there was a board. And that board directed the organization it was kind of owned by the membership. So a country club might be organized like this or another fraternal organization. There's all kinds of organizations that are not for profit. Now, we can issue tax receipts for charitable giving because we weren't a charity, but we did do fundraisers. And if we raised a bunch of money to build a playground, we would use that money to build a playground. But the public just had to kind of trust us because there was no oversight from the government or anything like that, right? It was just, we're the Kiwanis Club, we're not-for-profit, and we're raising money for the playground. And I mean, we were transparent. If anyone ever wanted to see that, we would show that we raised all the money for the playground. But we also collected dues from our members every month that all went into the same uh, P&L or income statement for the group. And we might choose to have a barbecue where we bought a bunch of steaks and ate them, right? So clearly that's not charitable. It's just a bunch of people getting together to have fun. So that not-for-profit enterprise, some people in the public might conflate or confuse not-for-profit with charity. Here, and this is where I'm going with this. So there are organizations out there that are not-for-profit companies that bill themselves as not-for-profit with some kind of altruistic or charitable aim or, or view. And they're controlled by a board who is basically influenced or under the control of the person who runs it, okay? And that person might take a $300,000 salary, for example, right? And so the, the entity never um, has a profit, but is it really a not-for-profit? It's, I mean, definitely there's a benefit to being the person who sits in the director's chair, right? And so this kind of thing happens, and, and there's two reasons I've found uh, where people will set these things up. Number one, because they want to be able to take a position or stance that lends people to believe they're, you know, have an altruistic aim at the end of the day. So this is where the confusion with charity comes in. So you could have a not-for-profit enterprise whose aim is to do something for children or, or what have you. And people will say, oh, well, I'd like to do business with them because they're doing this thing for children. Meanwhile, the profit in the business simply exits the organization in the form of a salary to the director instead of um, you know, being a profit line that gets taxed by the government in the way a for-profit business would be taxed. The other reason why people will sometimes set up this kind of thing is for goodwill appropriation. So what do I mean by that? Well, you could have a not-for-profit entity or even a government body, right? that has a certain amount of esteem or goodwill attached to it. Let's use, for example, a university, right? So a university might have a brand name that people recognize. Well, who owns the university? If you, if you get into the technicalities of it, a university is often owned by its members. And the members, in the case of my alma mater, because um, I looked into it, um, the membership that owns the university are the faculty, the staff, and the students and the alumni, right? So that, that, that body of people are the owners and then there's a board. And of course, because of government funding or whatever, they're under strict guidelines and controls, you know, 
from the government, right? So that university though has a brand and a reputation. So someone might want to create an organization that attaches itself to that university. So it might be the whatever foundation of the certain university for innovation or the whatever foundation of the certain university for this or for developing that or what have you, right? And so now from the point of view of the public, people see that organization and they, they believe that there's a quality effort being made there because of the attachment of, uh, for example, the university's name to it, right? So this is what I mean by goodwill appropriation. And it, because you're um, doing business with or being affiliated with the university, they probably don't want to put their name on a for-profit company. So again, you create a not-for-profit entity of some kind, um, which is going to have its own board of directors. And in designing and building all of this, what you do is you then create that cushy director's job or whatever that has the high income earning potential. Or you create a second way of monetizing it through having another organization or consulting firm or whatever that some work gets parceled out to, which in turn could be the profit uh, earning organization. Anyway, so those are the different uh, sort of methodologies. When I was when I created that eight reasons not to buy a business video um, and I said, you shouldn't buy a business if you can figure out another way to make as much or more money by not being the owner. These were some of the things that I was thinking about. And I'd love for you guys to uh, to give your comments down below. Um, I think it'd be interesting if you've seen some examples of this, particularly in the fourth one uh, with the not-for-profit not enterprises. Um, and um, yeah, if um, I can't forget to plug the stuff. If you want to learn how to buy a business and you're trying to control risk and um, and buy something that already makes money, of course, um, that would be, in my opinion, smarter than you know trying to start your own not-for-profit and being uh, devious or 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 tricky. Um, then make sure you head over to businessbuyeradvantage.com. Um, and at businessbuyeradvantage.com, you're going to learn about all the different ways that I help people buy a profitable and successful business in a risk-controlled fashion. And uh, with that, I'll say see you later. We'll see you next week. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Bye. So how can you learn more about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses? Easy. Head over to my blog site, davidcbarnett.com, where you can learn more about me and how I work with my clients. You can learn more about my books and the online courses that I've prepared for you. You can find out about how to subscribe to my email list, the YouTube playlists, etc. There's literally hundreds of hours of content there all for free, and I'd love for you to be my guest. Special thanks go out to Jeff Alpaw Customs for being my tailor. Men all around the world can look dangerous, just like me with the help of Jeff Alpaw Customs. JeffAlpaw.com, use the code DCB10 to save. They handle multiple currencies and ship anywhere you happen to be.